Uh, yeah, so my name is Charlie. I'm the uh, RUF campus minister at UNM. We just had a pretty slammed two weeks uh, welcoming new students back and new students coming in and everything. Um, it was crazy. We handed out a lot of Pop-Tarts and a lot of uh, Otter Pops and Bolis and uh, what else? Capri Sun. Um, yeah, I'd love to tell you more about it, uh, so pull me aside. Um, yeah. All right, so uh, I played tackle football for like all of three whole years, uh, fifth, sixth, and seventh grade. We were the Salina Eagles. In fifth grade, we were pretty terrible. Um, maybe just mediocre, I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell when you're in fifth grade, uh, the difference there. But in sixth grade, we dominated. You might wonder, uh, what changed? Well, Brian Taylor hit puberty. Like, going into this second season, he was literally a man among boys. And so what this translates into uh, in, in peewee football is a running back who is like a bowling ball through pins. I mean, unstoppable. We had one, we had one strategy, and it was just give the ball to Brian. Um, and I would know, okay, I was the, I was the quarterback. Uh, I was slow. I couldn't even throw very well, um, had the completely wrong temperament for football. I still have that temperament. Um, but I could hand the ball to Brian. Um, yeah. So, so everyone who was a Salina Eagle, uh, including the really inept quarterback, uh, we, we got to experience like this collective joy and, and confidence as we gloried in Brian Taylor carrying the football. And the only reason we did is because we were on his team. Like, we were, we were with him. You know, if, if, if any of us were to ever put on a different jersey and line up opposite of him, that glory, that confidence would have evaporated instantly. So this morning, we are looking at what are... Uh, one of what are called the royal psalms, because they deal with the office of the king in Israel. Now, the message of the psalm is clear. There is a king on the throne ruling on behalf of Yahweh, ruling his creation. And so the question before us this morning is, where do you stand in relation to the king? We're going to look at this psalm in kind of three, three parts. We'll look at life against the king, uh, life as the king, and then life in the king. So first, let's look at life against the king. Look again at verses 1 through 3. The psalmist asks, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The king set themselves against. They, they, they take counsel against the Lord. They're teaming up against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The psalmist is describing this seething restlessness that he sees. Um, if you have a dog, uh, maybe you've tried to do like the cute thing and uh, you get the dog like a sweater. And you put the sweater on the dog and like what do they do, right? They usually sit there kind of like this. And then they eventually kind of start like squirming and fidgeting. And as the agitation grows, they get more, you know, they're like trying to pull it off. Like they get more and more 
uncomfortable. The psalmist is looking out and he sees nations, he sees peoples, cultural, political powers that are deeply uncomfortable and agitated with the idea of the rule of God over them. He sees them pulling and squirming and scheming with growing intensity. And then he hears this refrain, kind of growing in unison, we must break free from this rule. We've got to throw these cords off of us. We've got to get out from under the Lord's anointed. Now, this this term, the Lord's anointed, um, has a lot of freight in the Old Testament. Uh, in Hebrew, it's, it's Messiah. Um, so in Israel, from the very first king, Saul, it was understood this Messiah, this anointed king, uh, was a man that Yahweh himself chose and set on the throne to rule his people. Right? It, was, it was not somebody chosen by vote, by a representative you know, electoral college votes or anything, like chosen by fiat, by God, set on the throne. God tells Samuel who to anoint. So the king is ruling in God's name in Israel. He was a representative ruler on earth. And, and the logic of that then is that opposing this king is opposing God himself. Right? Uh, we, we probably get this idea... Um, like parents, if you have a babysitter, okay, you, I've never done this, I, I'm assuming this is how it goes. Like, you, you hire the babysitter, you bring the babysitter in, and you tell your kids, like, listen to so-and-so while we're gone. And then if you come back, and like, babysitter hasn't been listened to, that's, that's an offense against your own authority who set that babysitter in in authority in your stead. Like in, in 1 Samuel, um, this is such a serious offense in Israel's mind. David, Saul is trying to kill David, and, and David has multiple opportunities to take Saul's life, and he won't do it. He says, I will not set out my hand against the Lord's anointed, because he knows that would be setting his hand against Yahweh himself. So the psalmist looks around and he says, sees people scheming to overthrow the rule of God's king. And by doing this, they want to overthrow the rule of God himself. They want to be unfettered by God. They want to be free from his rule, out from his dominion, and they want to be under their own authority, right? Making their own judgments, doing what is right, in their own eyes, deciding for themselves. Does that sound familiar to anyone? <laughs> um, I mean, we can probably like list ways that we think, oh yeah, I can think of this out there where I see that happening all the time. Saw this on the news, I saw that on Facebook or whatever, where like, that looks like what, what I see going on there. But does it also sound familiar to what goes on in here? Like, sure, maybe we're not uh, leaving church and then spending the rest of Sunday afternoon like writing atheist manifestos or whatever, but when you read the Bible, 
maybe you tend to disregard the stuff you don't like. You think, ah, well, I think it's safe to say we know better than that now. Which, which really just means we've made ourselves the final arbiter of truth. We have decided we're the final say on things. We're the ultimate authority. Or maybe, maybe you just kind of, you know, you, you like pick and choose what applies to you, and you think, oh, okay, well, uh, I, you know, I think I'm doing okay on like the biblical sexual ethic. Um, you know, we, we mind what we say. I'm kind. I pray. I do my quiet times. Um, but I really don't like when the pastor starts talking about money. Like, I'll keep that one to myself. There isn't, there isn't one of us here who doesn't wrestle with God's authority in some way. Right? This is, this is the original sin. Like, the eating of the fruit was born of the thought, surely I should decide for myself. Man, I think that a lot. Before we move on, uh, I want to pause here and, and ask ourselves, when you see this, when you, when you look out there and you see cultures and so forth, like, rejecting God en masse... How do you react? When you sit and you're, you're in the, the seat of the, the psalmist here and you see that going on, what do you do? Like, do you get cynical? Just like throw up your hands? We're all going down. Do you get like this, this sizzle of anxiety? You like can't relax. You're like, I don't know, maybe it seems like TikTok or this political party or whatever is probably going to be the end of Christendom. I saw this flyer on campus the other day for a, uh, like a, a certain activist group. And I noticed the rally cry on the flyer, like the, the theme of the event they were holding was, speak louder. Speak louder. When you find yourself in the psalmist's shoes and you, you see this going on and, and you feel anxious about it, like, do you think, I need to raise my voice, I need to grab my keyboard, I need to get more, reply more angrily to people online or like have more fights with my in-laws or whatever, like talk over, talk more. Like we, we all have heard these shouting matches where it seemed like the MO was basically speak louder as a result of the anxiety. Hold that thought. Now let's ask this. Uh, remember, we said, we too take part in the rebellion. So when you see that in yourself, when you see that like restless, untamable, won't submit to God's word spirit, how do you react? Like this is the Christian life, by the way. Paul talks about this in Romans 7. When you feel that, when you see it, you feel keenly inside your inability to curb your own sin. If you're like me, maybe you go to one of two extremes. Like, I minimize. Uh, oh, this isn't 
this isn't that bad. Like, I don't know if I'd call that rebellion. Um, and then, then the other is like total despair, like I'm undone, and, and then what I do is like cloister myself from God and other people and fear. All right, well, if that's how we react, um, let's now ask, how do you suppose God reacts to this scene? So we're, we're uh, going to look at the second part now, life as the king. Um, so in the face of this, this vociferous rebellion, uh, what does Yahweh, the I am, the, the self-existent creator of heaven and earth, how does he react to this? Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What does that mean? <laughs> um, well, we can say it, it doesn't mean that God thinks human sin is funny or trivial. Uh, that may seem obvious, but it, it's worth saying because some of us have been wounded deeply by the rebellion of other people. No, the psalmist is clear later here that God will speak to them and he will speak to them in wrath. I know a lot of times it feels like the sins against us, God doesn't seem to take those very seriously. And if that's you, I just want to say, like, stay in this book, stay in the psalms, because they, were, they are filled with people crying out, pleading, wondering before God, asking like, do you not see? Where are you? Have you turned away? Why don't you do something? This psalm in particular ought to assure us that God actually does take those sins against us very seriously, even more seriously than we do because they are ultimately against him. So if it's not a laughter of, of, at the triviality of this rebellion, well, what does this mean? So the psalmist is getting at something theologians call the creator-creature distinction. Okay? The creator-creature distinction. And that's, there's this, this impassable line in reality, and on one side there's God, and then on the other side, there's literally everything else. There's, there's a one-way relationship of dependence from the creature to upon the creator in a way that it just simply isn't possible for the creature to be a genuine threat to the creator. It would be like you building Legos with your kid and then, like, getting terrified that they might, like, overcome you, you know? Or, or like, a, like an author being afraid that the villain she's written might, like, take over her life or, or, like, come get her or something, right? Like, not only could the author not be, like, outmaneuvered or surprised or threatened by her own villain, but, like, it's not even in the realm of possibility for her to be threatened, it would undo what is intrinsic to the relationship between author and character. 
not this analogy breaks down, but I, I think so much of the time when we think of God and his creation, the, the categories we sort of have in our head are like, they're a lot more like Frankenstein or something where, where um, like God is surprised that his creation is doing what it's doing. It's, it's gone rogue and he's like scrambling, you know, trying to do damage control. And we look around we see this news segment or um, see that article headline or what our brother-in-law told us he thinks is probably going to happen next or whatever. Um, we look at the, the crazy, bad stuff happening in our own life. And we kind of wonder, like, is God failing at damage control? But hear this this morning. Um, God does not do damage control. He is not in reactive mode, desperately trying to patch up a boat that may or may not sink. God is not in crisis mode. He does not have a crisis mode. He has one way of doing things. St. Paul calls it working all things according to the counsel of his will. Our, uh, one of our, our catechisms puts it like this. Um, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Preserving and governing in holiness, in wisdom, in power, all his creatures, and all their actions. Now, I know for some of you, like, when we start talking about sovereignty of God stuff, like, you're doing fist pumps inside, you're like, yeah. Um, I imagine that for plenty of you out there, though, like, this raises a lot of very hard questions. really, like, very real questions. It does for me. And if that's you, let me just say, like, it is okay to wrestle with that. Like, I don't, I don't know if there's anybody who doesn't to some degree. But let me also encourage you, like, actually wrestle with it. Like, you know, grab your Bible, read it, Test if what I'm saying here is true. And don't just do this on your own. Wrestle with this in a community group or like grab Justin or an elder or a friend here and wrestle through this with them. Ask them like, how do you think about this? How have you wrestled with this in your life? In uh, RUF as a ministry, we have, uh, we have a thing we say. A lot. Um, God is at work. And we say this to each other, I mean, all the time. Uh, oh, like your, your ministry account is super low. God's at work. You invited 10 kids to a Bible study. Nobody came. It's okay. God's at work. Uh, you know, something great happens. Like, yes, God's at work. Um, it's, it's this shorthand for this idea we just talked about in this catechism, right? Holy, wise, and powerful and he is at work bringing his plan to fruition. 
He who sits in the heavens laughs. Not at the triviality, but because anxiety simply can't coexist with sovereignty. All right, so we've looked at life against the king and life as the king. So we may be all well and good with the idea of a sovereign God, but that in itself actually isn't good news. Right? God's sovereignty will only be a comfort to us if we believe down to his bones that he's good, that everything he does flows from goodness. Right? The, the problem with Adam and Eve, it wasn't that they didn't think God had authority, it's that they weren't, weren't really sure he was good. They didn't trust what he was doing with that authority. And so they wanted that authority for themselves. Sovereignty without goodness can actually be very terrifying. So how do we know this king is good? Uh, you may, might be familiar with the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, and uh, C.S. Lewis, one of his uh, novels, and... The young girl, Lucy, is first learning about Aslan, who's uh, maybe, say, sort of a Christ figure, um, and uh, the creator of this world, Narnia. And when she first learns that he's a lion, a small girl, uh, the next thing she wants to know is if he's safe. Understandable. Um, And she's having this conversation with Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver says to her and her sister... Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Right? Lucy wanted some assurance that Aslan's power wasn't all that formidable or, or, or anything she needed to feel threatened by. But Mr. Beaver knows that what she really needs to hear, it's not that he's like a tame, cuddly, docile lion who isn't powerful, but that what animates and directs The power is goodness, that his heart is good. So it's great that there's a sovereign king on the throne, but how do we know that he's good? Let's look again, verses 10 through 12. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So to the very kings and rulers rejecting God's anointed king, the psalmist then assumes the role of prophet, and he declares to them, he warns, he advises, he pleads, embrace this king. This is a call to repentance. Now, we, we, can, we can miss this, um, right? There's, there's threats of anger and perishing and wrath, and, and if we're not careful, we can kind of read this last section as a kind of finger-wagging, shaming, like, get your act together. And maybe for a lot of us here, when we hear the word repentance, repent, what we really hear is do better or else. Clean up your act. Get yourself together. Stop sinning. Do the right thing. But if that's really repentance, 
We wonder how Jesus could have spoken to the Pharisees as if they needed to repent because they were externally doing all the right things. So repentance must be something other than simply stop doing sin behavior things and do right behavior things. And I think the last part of the psalm sheds some light on that. The psalmist pleads, turn from your rebellion to the true king. Right? It's not a turn from doing one thing and do another thing. It's turn from one kingdom to another kingdom. Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, he probably gives maybe the clearest definition of this in Scripture in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Right, so they turned from their idolatry and sin and turned to the true God, putting hope and security, their security in him as their deliverer. So when the psalmist issues this call to repentance, it's not a slap on the wrist. It's an invitation for them to abandon their futile, self-serving ways, their, their little kingdoms, and to find hope and life in God's anointed king, right? The call to repentance ultimately is a kindness of God. He's saying, it's not too late. Right now, it's not too late. If you lay down your weapons and turn to me, take refuge in me under my wing, you will be blessed. You will be happy. It's a call to seize and desist from rebellion and to come and find life, to live the good life in God's presence and care. And uh, lest we confuse this, this this isn't just a call to unbelievers. A lot of times we think um, repentance is that thing we did when we prayed that prayer at that one summer Bible camp way back um, or when the preacher asked us to raise our hand or that sort of thing. Um, but the, the, the great German reformer and pastor Martin Luther said that when Christ calls us to repent, he means for our whole lives to be ones marked by repentance. Like, like daily, hourly, we, we, turn from finding, uh, we turn away from finding life in literally everything else we go search for, and we turn back to finding life in God. God says, turn, come back to me, find real life. Now, it's not mentioned explicitly, but in this invitation, it's implied that the king would have to overlook or forgive the sin of the rebels who turned to him. And so we have to ask, like, how can he do that if, as we said earlier, He takes sin far more seriously than even we do. So if we fast forward, when Jesus is with his disciples and he's finally recognized as the Christ, remember, uh, Christ is not a last name, it's the Greek form of Messiah, anointed one, it's the same title. They're confessing that he is the anointed one, the anointed 
king. This one here from Psalm 2, when that is recognized in Jesus, what does he do? He turns in his mission. He sets his face to Jerusalem so that God can set him on his holy hill. And it wasn't to physically enthrone him right then and there. Right? I think plenty of the Israelites would have been happy with that, get rid of all the people who are threatening Israel and that sort of thing. But it actually was to let the kings and the rulers of the earth plot and overthrow him. They hated every way he threatened their autonomy and their power. And so they raised him up on a hill on Golgotha, and they didn't know it, but that was God raising him up and placing him on that hill so that Jesus could say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He died for the rebels so that they could be forgiven. So if you, if you feel that rebellious spirit in yourself, like this is good news. It's good news for me. He was raised up on that hill so that our real enemies, sin, death, and Satan could be defeated and put under his feet. So again, we ask, how do we know he's good? This is how you know. Because he lowered himself, subjected himself to death, and took your guilt and laid waste to your enemies. This is the king who says, repent. Turn from your death, from your little kingdom. Come to me and find life. Find your life. Find your refuge in me as your savior. Find your peace in me as your ruling and defending king. And all we have to do is receive him. Run to him for refuge. Embrace him. Kiss the son Hear his voice this morning, City Prez. Let's pray. Father, how good it is for you not only to invite us to yourself, but also to provide a way to remove the guilt that would keep us from you. Um, Spirit, help us to run and hide ourselves in Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen.